Well, good afternoon again. Really glad to see you guys. Uh, as Eliza mentioned, we're going to be starting a new series starting today. Uh, we're going to go through the book of Philippians. Um, the tagline is Joy at All Times. And so as we go through this book, um, I really encourage you to follow along with us. So we're going to start with just a quick overview. And so on the map here, we have a map of of Paul's missionary journeys. So we want to give a little background on the Philippian church, which he's writing a letter to that we're going to go through. So uh, it's, I know it's kind of hard to, to read the, the names, but basically um, on the right side, you'll have Antioch, which is his home church, and then the first missionary journey, which he just kind of does a small loop through Galatia. But then the second missionary journey is where he takes an extensive trip. Right, and he starts uh, from Antioch, and he goes all the way through Asia. Then he goes uh, and visits a lot of cities. He visits Colossae and uh, Philippi and Thessalonica. So you should recognize a lot of those names. Those are the churches that he's going to write letters to. Okay, so this is when he established that, and this was on his second missionary journey, and that's the context that we're going to see right now in the book of Philippians. So Paul is going to write a letter to one of those churches that he established on his second missionary journey. He's going to write a letter to the church in Philippi. Okay, so when we look at the book of Philippians, Paul is writing to them about 10 years later after this journey. So after this missionary journey, about 10 years later, he's writing a letter to them. Okay, and he's writing a letter to them from house arrest. He's actually in jail right now when he's writing this letter. Okay, so that's kind of the context of what we're going to have when we look at this book. So we're going to go through just verse by verse, you know, over the next uh, couple months, we're going to go through it. So let's start today in chapter 1. Okay, Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. If you remember, this is a letter. So that's like any letter, they have like a salutation. So they have like a beginning. They have a greeting that they have at the beginning of each letter. So if you look at Paul's greeting in this letter to the Philippian church, he starts out with saying, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Okay, so when you read that, it's easy to kind of just gloss over that and just kind of say, okay, hurry up and get to the rest of the, the letter, right? But there's a lot actually happening just even in this first verse that we don't want to bypass. So he introduces himself, but not just himself, he also introduces Timothy. Okay, so if you're familiar with Paul and Timothy, that they are first initially, Paul is the one who leads Timothy to Christ. He is the one who disciples him and raises him up. But this is a significant point that he mentions Paul and Timothy together, that they're co-laborers together. So they're co-laborers together in their ministry to the Philippian church. Now, why is that significant? I think it's significant because when we look at Paul and Timothy, that that's an example for us in our relationship with other people and Christians. I like to think of when you're thinking about yourself and your Christian life and uh, wanting to grow and mature, every maturing Christian should have three different levels where they have relationship with people, okay? Here's a little diagram to kind of describe what I mean by that, okay? There's three different levels. You should have someone above you that serves kind of like as a mentor toward you. So that person is mentoring you, help leading you and guiding you and helping you direct you. 
You also have a peer relationship that's on the same level as you. Those are the people that you co-labor with. Those are the people you have fellowship with. Those are people you live life with. You need to have that peer relationship with. A lot of times that comes within church and in small group and at your work or wherever that place be, that's having this peer relationship. But you should also have a relationship where you're trying to reach those that are coming behind you to disciple people. Okay, so those are the three levels for a maturing Christian. So obviously when you first start out, you don't start out with all of these things. Okay, you start out basically from the beginning as a disciple. Okay, so let me give you an example, okay, from my own personal life. I'll describe the first time I was that and I had someone discipling me. Okay, so for me, for me my spiritual journey began, I guess, from the womb. You know, my parents started going to church from the womb, they went to Young Not Korean Church, so if you're familiar with that church, that's where I started going from birth, right? I didn't have any choice, you know? I didn't have any say in it. My parents just brought me there and brought, eventually brought me, me and my sister there. So I grew up in that church. But really, when I look back, I had no relationship with God. I just went because this is what my family does on Sunday. We go to church. And then we go to McDonald's after, or we do whatever. That was just our family routine. That's what we did on Sundays. You know, like I said, I had no choice in that matter. I couldn't say that I wanted to go or I didn't want to go. That's just what we did. But along the way, I had no one kind of speaking into my life. I had no discipler. I had really, when I look back, I don't even think that I was a Christian when I was going there all those years. Okay, that goes to show you just because you go to church doesn't mean that you're a Christian. You need to have a personal relationship with God in order to be a Christian. Okay, so that was my case. All throughout my childhood, going to church, going to church all those Sundays, but I don't think that I was even a Christian. Okay, so fast forward um, to college. Okay, so college is my first time away from home. Okay, so I'm away from home for my first time. Uh, and I remember specifically, and it's very interesting because I don't think that I was a Christian growing up, but yet when I started going to school uh, in college, and you might have had this too, during the first week they had this kind of like welcoming week, right? So they had all these different tables of all these different groups and clubs on campus. And to this day, I don't know why, but I visited all the Christian clubs, right? Again, I don't think that I was a Christian growing up. I don't think that I was a Christian that day. You know, when I was going and, and going to the welcome week at college, I don't think that I was a Christian. But for some reason, I look back now, I think God kept pursuing me. I was drawn to all the different Christian groups. And so all throughout my Christian, all throughout my undergraduate time, I would go and visit all the different Christian groups. So I went to InterVarsity, and I went to Navigators, and I went to all these different Christian groups. And then, you know, what my experience would be, I would go there, until they got to know me, and they knew who I was, and then I would leave. I would go to another Christian group. And same thing with church, right? I would go to church, not every week, but I would go to church, and then the same thing. I would go to one church until they knew my name, until they started recognizing me and wanted me to get involved, and then I'd go to another church, right? So that was kind of my routine all throughout. At the end of my uh, college time, that's when I became a Christian. Okay, so that's when I became a Christian, and it was actually through uh, friends that I had met through university. So that's how I became a Christian initially in college. Okay, and then I started to make a commitment. I said, okay, I can't keep church hopping. I can't keep, keep jumping around from different churches. I need to commit to a church. 
Okay, so I committed to a church nearby uh, campus at UCI, and then I committed to that church. Okay, so once I started going to the church, and even though they knew my name, I stayed there. Okay, I wasn't afraid to jump away. I stayed there, and then the college pastor uh, well, wanted to meet with me, get to know me. Okay, so uh, I remember specifically, okay, we were having lunch one day, and he invited me out to lunch, and he said, let me hear your story. And so I kind of told him basically kind of what I told you guys, right? That I kind of grew up going to church, but I don't think that I was a Christian. And I just became a Christian not too long ago. Okay. I still remember after that, he told me, oh, that's really good. Um, do you think you'd be interested in becoming a Bible study leader? I, I, I didn't know. I didn't know that this was something I wasn't supposed to do. So I said, Sure. Yeah, I was really excited for God. I was really passionate. I was really on fire. I'm like, yes, let me let me do that. It wasn't until later when I started becoming a more mature Christian, now a pastor, I look back, I was thinking, what is he thinking? I just told him I just became a Christian. He wants me to be a Bible study leader, right? I was thinking, this is not what they teach you at seminary, like, <laughs> you know, for what to do. And what's really interesting is I actually reconnected with my college pastor, who was my first discipler. So he was discipled me and a few others in our college group. I got reconnected with him a couple years ago. So I got reconnected with him, and I was over at his house uh, talking with him and his wife. And then I remembered that lunch I had with him, right? And I asked him, hey, do you remember when I first met you? And I first started coming to the college group, and then we had lunch together. And then I told you that I just become a Christian. I asked him, why did you ask me to become a Bible study leader, right? And then he said to me something very interesting. He said, I don't know why, but I felt like God was saying that there was something special on your life. And so he prompted me to ask you, even though to him and to me now, it didn't make any sense. You don't ask a brand new Christian to become a Bible study leader, but he said he saw something in me. That was the value of having a discipler, someone to help lead and guide. He saw something in me that I didn't even see in myself at the time. I had just become a Christian. I had grown up in the church, but really, I, don't, had, I didn't have any relationship with God. But yet, he was there with, with me. And then I was trying to make up for lost time. I was Bible study leader, so I was hungry to try to learn, like, I better learn something or else I can't leave Bible study. And so, like, I'm studying scripture, like, all the time. I'm in the Bible all the time. And, and then growing and growing by leaps and bounds as I first started to go in there. And it's interesting how God used that first thing. And I told him, I told him that when I got reconnected with him, God used what he spoke to him to really put me on the path to where I am today. Because I never thought that I was going to be a pastor. I never thought I was going to be in this position that... But really, God planted a seed way back then, something that uh, he spoke to the one who discipled me. He saw, and he responded, and he put me on this path to lead me where I am today. So it's just an example to see how significant it can be when you have someone that's pouring into you. And as a disciple, disciple literally means learner, okay? It means learner. So when you are a disciple, that you're actually learning from this person, okay? So um, now, as I continue to grow, I've had other people kind of disciple me, but actually, they would actually mentor me, okay? So at my previous church, the senior pastor was my mentor, okay? So you might ask, what's the difference between a mentor and a discipler, okay? 
They might sound like the same thing, but it's not. There's a subtle difference, right? They're very similar, but it's a subtle difference, right? A discipler is one more acting like a teacher. They're going to actually teach you and instruct you. You're more of like in a student kind of situation, right? And not that you don't learn as a mentor. You still learn with your mentor, but the mentor is not there to tell you what to do. He's telling you to ask you questions and to help guide you and help direct you so you can make the decisions. You're not having someone tell you what to do. Often in a discipler, they would probably be in that situation where they're actually instructing, I don't think you should do this. I think you should do this. And then you say, yes, sir. And you try to follow, right? Or you follow their kind of leading as you just start becoming a Christian. But eventually, you want to have that relationship where you are maturing, Right? And you have a mentor that's helped leading you and guiding you and making these decisions, but you're making them together with the Lord. Okay, So these are the relationships you should be having. You don't have to have all of them at all times. I would say the peer one you need to have all times. Right, But you're not always discipling someone. You're not always in a mentor relationship. But you should always have those three levels in mind. This is what we see with Paul and Timothy. Going back here to Philippians 1.1, this is what Paul and Timothy had. They became a discipler uh, to a disciple to co-laborers together. Okay, so they experienced two of those different levels. Here we see in Philippians 1.1. So it's Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, slaves to Christ Jesus. The doulos is what the, the Greek says. They are servants or slaves to Jesus. That's how they describe themselves. To all the saints. Okay, remember we talked about this in the Resurrected Life series. We are saints, not based on what we do, but based on who he is. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including to the overseers and deacons. So this is the introduction. Okay, then we go into the main text starting verse 2. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in every prayer for all of you. Why is he doing that? Why is he having joy when he remembers that? Verse 5, in view of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, for I am confident of this. Very good, this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Okay, so he's sharing that he has so much joy when he's thinking about the people in the Philippian church. Why does he have so much joy? Because they're partners together with him. Partners together in what? In terms of the gospel. And then in verse 6, which is uh, one that a lot of people have memorized, in verse 6 he says, I am confident of this. That he who began a good work in you, what's the good work? Well, you need to look at the context. What is the context of verse 6? Right there in verse 5. He's talking about the gospel. He who began a good work in you, what work? The gospel. He who began this good work in you, he will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. When you look at verse 6, it's a great picture of the gospel. Look at verse 6. It says, he who began a good work in you which talks about when you first become a Christian. It talks about justification. 
He who began a good work in you, justification, will carry it on to completion, sanctification, until the day of Christ Jesus, glorification. It has the whole gospel here in one verse. It has the very beginning, when you're justified, when you're made right with Christ. It has the whole process after that, when you're growing into this new identity, this new creation that you are. That's the sanctification process until the very end, until you, when you meet Christ Jesus. That's when glorification happens. Okay? One thing that I wanted to point out, though, when you look at verse 6 is, who is the one doing all of it? Who is doing all those parts? Sanctif justification, sanctification, glorification. Who's doing all of it? God is. And it's very easy for us to forget that. It's very easy to remember it when we first become a Christian. When you first become a Christian, you know it's not because of yourself. You know it's not anything you do. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It's by grace you are saved. Nothing from your own works so that nobody can boast. When we become a Christian, that's the only way you can become a Christian. To realize there's nothing you can do. You can't bring anything. You can't merit anything. You can't deserve anything. It's all God's grace that he gives you to give you eternal life. It's all him. That's where we start. But after we start, somehow we forget that and think, Sanctification, now it's my part. God, you did your part. Now it's my turn. Now it's my turn. I'm going to work out these things. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to work out all those things. Right? So when we look at this, it's a really good picture and a reminder that's not true. Okay? And we're going to look at it again in the next few verses. That's not the case. Okay? So let's keep going here. So in verse 7, he says, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you, talking about the church, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you were all partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Okay, so there's a couple things to point out in this section here. First, we get the context of what I said. He's writing this from prison, okay? And we're going to keep on reminding ourselves of that as we go through this passage. It's real significant that he's writing from prison. The second thing is to see Paul's heart. He loves this church so much. Now, it's important to recognize the context that we talked about. This is not the only church. He planted many churches throughout his missionary time. This is just one of them. And I wanted to, to pay attention to the date, too. This is 10 years later. Okay, why is that significant? Okay, if you're like me, I'm very present-oriented. Okay, so some people, like, look at the past a lot. Some people are always in the future. But I'm very in the present. I'm very in today. Okay, my idea of thinking about the future is, what am I going to have for lunch tomorrow? Okay, that's my idea of the future, right? I'm very present. Okay, I don't look to the past too much. And I really try to stay present in the moment, okay? Which sometimes is good and sometimes is not good, okay? But that's kind of my nature is to think about the present. But one of the results of that is out of sight, out of mind. If I don't see it right in front of me, I don't think about it, okay? I am always focused in on like what's in front of me. Okay, so when I look at this and think that this is 10 years later from when he had planted this church and had connection with them, I think, wow, look at how much he still thinks of them 
and prays for them and loves them. And he says, his genuine, I desire so much and I have the affection of Christ Jesus for you. And I remember you always in thanksgiving and rejoicing over you. And I think, this is amazing. You know, this really reveals the heart of God and in his relationship with the church because 10 years later, I mean, they don't have FaceTime. They're not like talking to each other all the time. They can't call each other. They're not texting each other. He can't take an airplane over there and come visit them every once in a while to keep that relationship fresh. He probably has almost no connection with them for the past 10 years. But look at how he's talking to them. Look at how much he loves them. And I feel like this is the love we need to have for each other in the church, whether it's in this church or in other churches, connection with other parts of the body, to have that kind of love for one another. That's why we see it in John 17. John 17 is Jesus' last prayer before he's going to go to the cross. And what does he pray? He prays, let the world see that we are one just as he is one. Then the world will know who he is. And that always strikes me, like of all the things he could pray, of all the things that he could say about what's going to mark the church and what's going to help people know that who he is, he says, if we're one together. That's surprising to me. It's not, they're going to see by your message, they're going to see by your prayers, they're going to see by the miracles that come out, they're going to see by all, no. They will see when you're one together, just like the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one together. We need to have this heart that Paul has. We need to love one another. We need to be family together. We need to be that connected to one another. We need to be for each other. This is the body of Christ. This is what God made the church about, and it's a reflection of who he is. And this is what Paul is sharing. He's pouring out his heart from the very beginning to the church. Verse 9 through 11. And this I pray, so now he starts to pray for them, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness when it comes from Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Okay. So this is kind of going back to verse 6 here. Look at what he's saying. He's praying that the love that they have would keep increasing, right? They had increased more, and that the things that they're involved with, the excellent things, would go even more, and that they would be sincere, and that they would be blameless until the day of Christ Jesus, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Like, Paul is praying, it's, it's pretty lofty. It's pretty up there to be sincere and blameless, continue to grow in love, and the fruit of righteousness that could feel like a heavy weight. That could be like a high responsibility. But that's why it's important to recognize verse 6. It's God that's in work in you. He's going to perfect it. He is the one doing these things. And look at the verse. It says, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes from where? Through Christ Jesus. And that's to his glory and to his praise. It's interesting because... I think it's very easy to kind of deceive ourselves. And what I mean by that is, it's very easy to deceive ourselves of what we do and what we accomplish. You know, I shared about this uh, when I was talking about my fast last week. And one of the things that kind of came out during the fast time is when I did my 40-day fast, you just recognize how clearly you're dependent on God and that it's all him. Every day, it's all him. 
right? And you remember what I shared, what God told me at the end is like, that's true every day. That's true when you're not fasting. You're taking you to fast for you able to realize the reality of what's true all the time. It's all me all the time. And somehow we get confused thinking that it's us. It's interesting. I was on a prayer walk this week, and God was reminding me of that. And then I was thinking about my life and thinking about all the times I took credit for things. All the things that I accomplished, all the things that I've done, all the things that I've gone through. Good things, you know, things that happened in ministry, people coming to Christ, other things going on in my life. And I was thinking about those things in light of this, and I was really saddened, and I was really spending a time of confession and repentance. And I, my prayer was this, Lord, I'm sorry that I took credit for the things that you did. I'm sorry that I thought it was me doing it and not you. I'm sorry that you deserve the praise and the glory and thanksgiving, but you didn't get it because I couldn't recognize. I couldn't recognize that it was you the one that's doing it. You're the one that was carrying it. You're the one that was empowering it. You're the one that was leading it. You're the one that was guiding it. You're the one that was doing it, not me. It's so easy to think that we're doing it. It's so easy to feel the heaviness and the weight that comes on our shoulders when we think we're doing it, when that's not the reality, that's not the truth. The truth is we're not doing it. God is the one who's doing it. He is the one on the throne. We're not on the throne. He is the one doing them. We are not doing them, right? And you think intellectually we think that that's true? But practically, is that true? Do you feel a heaviness, a weight on your shoulders from all the things that you have to do, all of your responsibilities, all of your duties, all of the things that you want to do for the Lord, all the things that you have to do at work, all the things that you have to do as a mother or a father, all the things that you have to do as a son or a daughter, all the things that you have to do, all the responsibilities that you have? Day-to-day -day life, do we really think that this is true? And if it is true, does our experience match? Or do we feel the weight because we really think, no, it's really me that's doing it. Because if I don't do it, no one's going to do it. If I don't step in and make it, ha make it happen, nothing's going to happen. This reveals our heart. This reveals where we are. Do we feel the weight and the pressure of the things because they're on our, on our shoulders? Or do we feel the ease that comes knowing that the Lord is the one doing it? He asks us to come along for the ride. We're not the driver. We're the passenger. Okay? We're not supposed to be leading. We're not supposed to be driving the car. He's supposed to be driving the car. And I can tell you from experience, when you drive the car, you feel the weight. When you feel the weight, it should be a signal to you. You're not experiencing uh, Philippians 1.6. You're not experiencing that. He is the one that's going to perfect you. He is the one that's going to complete you. He is the one that's going to do all of these things. Now, it's easier said than done. I know. Personally, I know. I know this. Right? The Lord's been speaking to me this. I've been working on this, right? But even when, I, even when I just said, I've been working on this, right? You can see, I think I'm doing it. It's so easy, right? You even match with your words what you say, right? It's very hard not to do that, right? He was even telling me things like this. How many times have I said, oh, that's going to be hard? 
oh, that's going to be difficult. And the Lord kept pointing to me, every time you say, that's going to be hard, that's going to be difficult, who do you think is doing it? And I was like, oh, my goodness. Every time that I say, it's going to be hard, it's going to be difficult, it's because I think I'm doing it. And he started convicting me. He's like, watch your language. Watch the words that you say. Watch your perspective. Watch what you really believe. Do you really believe that I'm doing it? Or do you really believe that you're doing it? And he started speaking to me. And I said, Lord, I need to be a disciple, a learner. Please teach me. I don't know how to practically live this out. I know in my head it's an idea, it's a theology, it's a truth, it's a principle. But how do I practice it? How do I practice it? And that's where the learning comes in. That's where we continue to have to learn what it means to have him do it and not us. Let's look at this last section. We'll close with this. It says, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusted, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am pointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking that it may cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. This is a very interesting passage, right? When you look at it, it's very interesting, right? So Paul is saying he's in prison, right? And he's rejoicing because those that are... Uh, Guarding him, there's like guards that are going to be with him, and they're going to be around the clock. They're around the clock chained to Paul, and they take shifts, and they take turns being, being with him, right, and chained to him, right? And I can only imagine, what is it like to be chained together with Paul? He's like talking to you all the time. He's telling you about Jesus all the time. He's telling you about all his missionary journeys. He's telling you about all these miraculous things that the Lord did. Can you imagine being the guard, like having to be chained to him, like listening to him 24-7? You can't do anything, right? So he's saying all of the Praetorian guard, all of the guards, they've come to know Jesus because of being together with him. They don't have any choice in the matter. Okay, so he was saying that it's also giving courage to the people around him. He's not discouraged. That's giving courage to the other Christians, knowing that he was in prison because of Christ, knowing that they can have courage because he still feels joyful. He's still praising God. He's still worshiping God. He's still sharing the gospel when he's in prison. That's giving them courage. Okay? But then this last part is very interesting. Okay? So then this last part says, okay, so there's people out there. They're sharing the gospel. Some, it says, are doing it from envy and strife, but also some from goodwill. The latter, you know, from goodwill, they're doing it out of love, okay? But the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, okay? It's interesting when you think about that, that there's people preaching the gospel, but they're doing it all for themselves. And they're doing it to spite Paul. And he doesn't go into detail, but you would, you would have the idea from what he's describing is that they want to say, Paul, you're nothing. I can do it. They're going to they're gonna look at me. They're not going to look at you anymore out of selfish ambition, out of vain conceit, out of envy that they're preaching the gospel. And you might think, that's horrible. 
What a terrible reason. Those people that are preaching and sharing the gospel out of love, that's great. That's the way it should be, right? You should preach the gospel out of love. But he's saying that there's other people who are not doing that. They're not preaching out of love. They're preaching out of selfish ambition, out of bitterness, out of envy, that that's why they're preaching. And what's Paul's response? I rejoice from that. I rejoice that they're doing that. And I'm like, wait a minute, Paul. That doesn't seem right. Is there value in people preaching Christ if they do it from their own motives, if they do it out of selfish ambition? Is there value from that, that they preach the gospel out of envy and strife and to try to do something harmful to Paul? Is there value in them preaching that? Paul seems to think so. And I think this is where it's an important distinction. Is there value to themselves as the one sharing the gospel? I would say no. They're doing it out of selfish ambition. They're doing it out of, out of actually to harm someone. Is there value to them? No. Is there value to the ones hearing the word? Yes. It's valuable to those that are hearing the message. It's not valuable to the ones giving the message because they're doing it out of wrong motives. Their heart's in the wrong place. It has no value for them. But for the ones hearing the message, it has value. It has value. And that's where Paul's concerned. He doesn't care if these other people are not getting their rewards or any benefit for preaching the gospel. He doesn't care that they're doing it out of wrong motives. He doesn't care that they're trying to slander him and hurt him as a result of these things. He doesn't care. He makes the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is that people know about Jesus. That the gospel is the most important thing. That this is the most important thing in this life. This is the most important thing that we could ever give our life towards. This is everything that we live for as a Christian. That this is the main thing. It's interesting as I think about, you know, this past 15 months, you know. And it's been about 15 months since, you know, in the U.S. we started this whole COVID season. And uh, all the, the craziness that's, that's come through that time. And... Um, it seems like we're coming out the other end slowly, right? We're slowly coming out of the other end. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about there's things that happened during the past 15 months we want to do away with. We don't want to take with us. You know, as things start to opening up, we don't want to carry that with us. And that's things like fear. And that's things like discouragement. And that's things like anxiety. And there's other things like that that we experience. We don't want to take those things with us. But there are things that happened during the past 15 months that we don't want to forget, that we want to carry with us. And I think one of the biggest things for me is God resetting our priorities and getting back to the main thing and making the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is Jesus. It's not about the other things. Oh, it's not about the other things that we get so consumed with and so busy with and so easily distracted by. Those are the minor things, but it's easy to let the minor things become the major things. It's easy to get caught up in the rat race and all those things that are going on in our life and all the busyness. But it goes back to what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. All those things are a chasing after the wind. Meaningless. Meaningless. At the end of the day, are we going to say, be so happy or glad that we watched another Netflix series or that we did this, this success in this business or we made this much money or we did this kind of a claim? At the end of the day, are we going to be rejoicing over that when we come meet the Lord? Are we going to be rejoicing over what Paul is rejoicing about here? 
that the gospel is preached. Whether out of good motives or bad motives, I don't care. Whether it's to my demise, whether it's to my reputation that's hurt, I don't care. That doesn't mean anything to me because he's making the main thing the main thing, that it's about Jesus, that he would be known and that people would know him. And if I see anything for the past 15 months, it's this. People need Jesus. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to learn that, to know that. It doesn't take hardly any time in any kind of social media, any kind of news broadcast, any kind of news that's coming out, any kind of politics to realize this truth. People need Jesus. It's always been true, but so much more now. So much more now. People need Jesus. We need Jesus, but they need Jesus, especially those that don't have a relationship with God, need Jesus. And so this is where our focus needs to be. And I pray, this is my prayer for all of us, to help the main thing be the main thing. And to not let the minor things become the major things. To not let the busyness and those things that shout so loudly in our life take away our focus on really what the main purpose of our life is. The only thing that we can, can do here that we can't do in heaven is share the gospel. That's the only thing. The only thing that we can do here that we can't do after we die is share the gospel. This is the only thing. This is the main thing. You know, so whether it's in work, whether it's in your relationship, display Christ. Display him. Display him. Let him shine through your life, whether in word or in deed, and whether it's how you use your money or your time or whatever it is. Let that be your main thing. Let it be what it is for Paul, his everything. This is what drives him. Why don't we pray? Father, we want to... Ah, thank you for this beginning of the book of Philippians. And I want to thank you for just the heart that you displayed through Paul. Just about the love for people and the reality of just how good you are and the reality of how much you're in control and how much we don't need to be in control. How much we can lift that weight upon our shoulders and hand that over to you. So even as we pray right now, I pray that we could experience Philippians 1.6. It's you are the one that's going to carry it until completion, until the day of Christ Jesus. You are the one to carry. So I pray if there's anything we're carrying, that we would lift that over and give that over to you. I pray that you would release that from us. Thank you for your heart. Thank you for your love for, for people and for the church. Thank you for your love for your people and sending Jesus. Thank you, Lord, so much. Jesus' name, amen.